Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature found links to lemurs, showering ducks, zombie fish poison, and getting down with cancer. But first up, here's the news with Calvin Ng and Victoria Bond. Hi everybody, and we have a little roundup of science news this week. The Economist reports that countries could soon be disputing territory under the sea. The countries had ratified the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea by mid-May 1999, and until a fortnight ago, to submit claims to extend the continental shelf boundaries beyond the standard 200 nautical miles from their coastline. If successful, a country can acquire rights over lucrative oil, gas, and mineral reserves in the seabed. It already looks like some of these disputes will mirror the disputes that we had on land. For example, Britain has made a claim around the Falklands, South Georgia, and the South Sandwich Islands in the South Atlantic. These areas are also claimed by Argentina, who, as we remember, went to war with Britain in 1982 over the Falklands. China and South Korea are at odds over a part of the East China Sea, and France is claiming extra territory from its colony Saint Pierre and Miquelon, a small group of islands some 25 kilometers from Newfoundland, Canada. The trickiest disputes could come from the Arctic, where at least five countries—Canada, Denmark, Norway, Russia, and the United States—have ambitions for more. Arctic seabed to tap into the area's rich oil and gas reserves. The only claim under active consideration at the moment is Norway's, as the other countries have yet to put in submissions or, in the case of the United States, ratify the convention. Now we all know of famous artists, musicians, and writers who produced great works of art because they were tortured souls. So to that long list of Van Gogh, Virginia Woolf, and Kurt Cobain, we'll add. The Mockingbird. Researchers at the United States National Evolutionary Synthesis Center in North Carolina studied the singing of 29 species of mockingbirds and found that those who lived in the most hostile, unpredictable environments sang more elaborate songs to attract mates. As the birds have to learn their songs over time, the researchers say this leads to superior learning and mating skills. The findings were published in the journal Current Biology. And still on birds, a British MP was forced to resign after the British media revealed he had claimed a duckhouse, costing one thousand six hundred and forty-five pounds as part of his expenses. Sir Peter Vigors bought the one point five meter structure for a pond at his home in southern England, and eagle-eyed internet users have found pictures of his house, of this house, on Google Earth, Google Maps, and Microsoft's live search maps. Sir Peter had claimed over thirty thousand pounds for gardening expenses over three years, including five hundred pounds for manure. 
and there's no way he could duck away from this embarrassment. And while we're still on ducks and England, a three-year study from Oxford University, funded by British taxpayers, has found that ducks like to stand under a shower of water. The Taxpayers Alliance in the UK said it was a waste of research money on common sense, and the Devon chairman of the National Farmers Union said the government department that gave the funding was quackers. However, Marion Stamp Dawkins, a professor of animal behaviour who led the study, said the research aimed to find out the best way to farm ducks to make sure they were well cared for. She had previously done research on animal welfare and farming practices in the UK. The good news is scientists have found a great way to prevent cancer. The bad news is it's Down syndrome. Researchers at Harvard University noticed that people with Down syndrome suffer from about 10% the expected rate of cancer, except for leukemia. They postulated that this could be because people with Down syndrome have extra copies of a gene that would help suppress these tumors, and eventually they pinpointed a gene called Down syndrome candidate region one, or DSCR1. Now, what DSCR1 does is it suppresses vascular endothelial growth factor, which is what a tumor uses to make new blood vessels and grow. The researchers are hoping that by targeting DSCR1, they'll be able to treat future cancers. From the Economist, researchers discover how a skin disease may trigger a lung complaint. Researchers at Washington University believe that we're approaching the whole asthma problem the wrong way. Up until now, the hygiene hypothesis has been proposed as the cause for asthma. Researchers say that because we're in such hygienic environments, our immune system goes crazy and triggers anything as an allergen. But at Washington University, they're saying we're looking at the wrong thing, and that it might actually be caused by a skin disease known as eczema. In Australia, 17% of children suffer from this skin disease when they're very young. But it's not really treated that proactively because it's just seen as a, an irritant with no long-term ramifications. What the scientists found, though, is that when the cells are damaged, they send out a distress signal called thymic stromal lipophoietin, or TSLP. Now, TSLP travels through the bloodstream and gets to the lungs, where it sensitizes them to all sorts of allergens. So, in other words, it makes them asthmatic. And they found that 70% of children with eczema go on to develop asthma. They didn't just postulate this, though. They tried it on mice. So mice who got injected with TSLP went on to develop asthma. And even more interestingly, the mice that were lacking the receptor for TSLP didn't. The bottom line is that the researchers think that we should be treating eczema more proactively, that we shouldn't just let it go because it's a skin disease. We should educate parents about the ramifications and the dangers associated with asthma. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You could be bitten by a spider or by a snake... But fish, you usually bite them. Associate Professor Graham Nicholson from the Department of Molecular and Medical Biosciences in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, about the tropical fish disease Ciguatera and the fish you eat to catch the illness. There's many organisms that aren't venomous, 
but are lethal in their potential to, to kill humans. And they're poisonous animals, uh, animals that have poisons as part of their flesh or part of their organs or whatever. Uh, and, and some very obvious ones are the puffer fish sure. and ciguateric fish, so fish that carry ciguatera. And ciguatera is um, something that's uh, originally derived from a, a small microscopic dinoflagellate. So these dinoflagellates are eaten by very small fish, herbivorous fish, because they tend to adhere to sort of um, algae and things like that. And then those small herbivorous fish are picked up by larger carnivorous fish, and they sort of accumulate the toxin in their flesh. And when we eat those fish, because they're beautiful eating fish, we get poisoned by them. It's a form of food poisoning. And the action of this, I mean, my understanding is that there's a couple of things wrong for humans with ciguatoxins, that they're hard to eliminate from the body because yes. their structure? Ciguatoxins are, are really lipid-soluble. That means they they bind very strongly to fat, so adipose tissue, and it's very difficult for our bodies to actually excrete them because they are so lipid-soluble. So people who suffer with ciguatera often will have periods of sort of remission where they don't have any symptoms and then something will just trigger off a little bit of release of the toxin, or that's the theory anyway, and they start to succumb to the, the symptoms, which is basically numbness and tingling and mainly neurological symptoms, actually. And these neurological symptoms, they're caused by these iron channels in the cells being affected? Yeah, it's specifically the sodium channel, which is the one that's uh, responsible for initiating the nerve impulse that we use to transmit information between nerve cells uh, and essentially these sodium channels they operate they open sort of closer to their resting membrane potential so basically they're, they're much more easy to activate and once they're open uh, they're a little bit more difficult to close as well so we get sort of overstimulation of the the nerve fibers and it's mainly the sensory nerve fibers in this case so those sort of numbness tingling of the extremities around the lips is classic symptoms of ciguatera poisoning. Do we know how common it is? It's very common in the Pacific Atoll nations where they rely very heavily on a seafood diet, you know, particularly fish. You do get outbreaks of it here in Australia. There's probably about six to 800 cases over a 20 or so year period. So it's not particularly common here in Australia. But overseas, yes, you're looking at tens of thousands of people. So how do they know how many cases we get? Because it's not really a reportable illness, is it? It's not specifically a reportable illness, but in those Pacific Atoll nations, there's so many people that are presenting at hospital that uh, figures are kept. It's a little bit more difficult for Australian doctors to identify because it's nowhere near as common. So Mm. misdiagnosis can occur and we don't get that many outbreaks of it. Because when I looked into it, one of the weird things I found is there seemed to be a test to test for fish for the fishermen so they can test yep. for the ciguatera poison. Yes. But the Australian government doesn't require them to test for it if they're in dangerous waters because they don't accept that the test exists when you talk to fisheries. Yeah, I, I'm not so familiar with that area. The, the testing side of things, um, I'm aware that there is a test available. The main issue with the test, however, is that you're picking a couple of fish out of an entire catch and you're testing individual fish. So if you just happen to pick two fish that weren't affected, which is often the case, you wouldn't know that there's a problem. It's all just statistical. Yes. Yes. It's how many fish you collect and how many you test. It's difficult to work out whether you've tested enough of the fish to sort of claim that that catch is free of ciguatera. Right. 
So basically, it, although it's tropical fish, other fish could eat the tropical fish. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, so I know there's, there's lists of fish that are more at risk than other, yeah. other species of fish. Spanish mackerel, barracuda, red emperor, coral trout. These are you know, red bass. These are all you know, really good. Some of them very good eating fish. They tend to be more prone to become ciguateric. They're in the right areas where ciguatera can be found. And the other important fact is that those types of fish, because they're good-eating fish, are transported very large distances often around countries for, for other markets. So, you know, a fish, ciguateric fish could be caught in Queensland, but eaten in Melbourne the same day because they're transported south. So ciguatera is not limited to just the areas where the fish are actually caught. It can be a problem in, in you know, far-flung cities. Is there an anti-venom for ciguatera? No, there's no anti-venom. And even cooking the fish doesn't seem to inactivate the toxin. It's a, it's a very stable toxin. It's probably one of the most stable toxins. Is there a treatment? Um, if you catch patients early with the, the symptoms, and that's often the case in these Pacific Atoll nations because they, they're quite used to it, you can give the patients mannitol, which is basically a, a sugar. Um, you give it intravenously, and the idea behind it is that it, it actually acts as a, a diuretic agent. It helps increase the excretion of water. Flush it out. Uh, it's not so much flushing the toxin, but the toxin, through a sort of fairly complex procedure, um, actually causes a swelling of the nerve fibres. And by, re- by increasing the excretion of, of fluids from the body using mannitol, you can reduce the amount of swelling. And that seems to sort of um, reduce the, the symptoms uh, to some degree. And the, the severity of the disease is, is, is quite significantly abated. But you've got to catch it in the first 24 hours. And if you don't? then you tend to get the full-blown effects. And it depends on how much you've consumed. If it's a highly ciguateric fish, yeah, you can get pretty sick. I mean, extremely high levels, it is a lethal toxin, but there's very few people that die from ciguatera. It's more a long-term, ongoing illness, right. uh, which in some patients can last a year or so. Well, I believe there's some cases where they can last several years yeah. if they're really unlucky. Yeah, if because they're really unlucky. Yes. <laughs> Um, and the, what, in those cases, it's pretty much symptomatic and trying to treat the inflammation. There's really very little you can do for those patients. You can treat some of the um, sensory abnormalities. You know, many drugs have been trialled, local anaesthetics, antidepressants, antiarrhythmics. Some have very mild, weak effects, and there's not a huge amount of evidence to suggest that they're very efficacious in the treatment. So it's very difficult for those patients. Uh, they just have to put up with it. <laughs> Graham, on that note, Graham Nicholson, thank you very much. That's all right. Pleasure. That was Associate Professor Graham Nicholson from the University of Technology, Sydney, talking about ciguatoxins, one of the two poisons used by Haiti sorcerers to make zombies. Zombie fish poisons, indeed. And, of course, the reason we're callously laughing is that I myself was poisoned with ciguatera toxin seven years ago, and I'm still recovering. If you've suffered from ciguatera poisoning, please write to diffusion at 2SCR.com, and I'll email back about the treatments that I've found have helped my ciguatera poisoning, and be interested to know what treatments your doctor has found for you. I'm not a doctor. No standard treatment has been published. 
Now, Victoria Bond has some news about the links between old world primates and new world primates, humans and lemurs. Victoria. Well, I'm sure that by now you've heard about Darwinius, or as we like to call her, Ida, who was discovered in Germany recently. Ida is a 47 million year old fossil, and in case you haven't heard, she's been heralded as the missing link um, with great hurrah and uh, a lot of frustration from certain scientists. So let's cover some facts. What's interesting about Ida is that she's got a distinctly lemur-like skeleton, but she's also got some really primate characteristics, like opposable thumbs, and she's missing a grooming tooth, which is basically what um, defines lemurs. Another thing about Ida is that she's been amazingly preserved. So she's from the Eocene period, which is a period of very, very fast evolution in primates. And we have very few fossils that are intact. In fact, I don't even know if we have a single fossil that was intact before Ida. And she's so well preserved that we could even tell what she had for dinner, which is grass and a few berries, in case you were wondering. So those are the the good points about Ida. She's had a lot of slog Um, thrown at her recently, though, because she was heralded as the missing link. And a lot of scientists are saying that this is media hype and that it's bad science. Ida is not the missing link? Well, I think the term missing link itself is really, uh, it's not a term that should be used, but it's one of the media favorites. There's no such thing as a missing link. That's not how evolution works. And missing link even implies that evolution has a direction which leads to human beings as the final product. The truth is, evolution is more like a tree with lots of branches or bush. So Ida's super interesting, but not just for humans. She's also interesting for apes and orangutans and lemurs because she helps place all those different clades. They should know by now because missing links been something they've been rediscovering every year for decades. I think Ida's the victim of sensationalistic media, right? So, I mean, whatever sells well, she's she's become kind of a cash cow for the History Channel that's, you know created this entire program based on Ida and, and what she can tell us. And I think that's kind of unfair towards other fossil discoveries because they're, they're just as relevant, but they're not being called a missing link, quote unquote. So they're not getting the same kind of funding or attention. And I believe there's actually a really, there is some controversy, not just about the use of the phrase missing link, but about the science behind it. Oh, absolutely. We have a ton of scientists that are speaking out about what the paper actually claims. So Harum who's the main scientist backing this paper, claims that humans actually evolved closer to haplorine primates rather than tarsiers and anthropoids. There are, there are three main classes of primates that um, humans are postulated to have evolved from. And Herm believes the more controversial claim that they're from haplorine primates. The problem with this is that he's using kind of the media attention from Darwinius to mix everything up and to change the clades based on very, very little evidence. And a lot of scientists are saying that the paper shouldn't have been published to begin with, that it's the fact that he's got the media to jump on it first that allowed him to be published. Ooh, so he's being accused of circumventing scientific method. Exactly. And he's actually been quoted to say... um, with regards to marketing, any pop band is doing the same thing, any athlete is doing the same thing. We have to start thinking the same way in science. Ooh, them's fighting words. I think so. I think there's a, there's a big problem with that, which lies in the fact that science isn't about popularity. Science is about objective facts. And I think that using marketing and using 
media attention to get your way and get your funding. It's like publication bias. It's like papers that get published more when they have results than when they don't have results. A paper that doesn't have results is just as valid as a paper that does, but they get published less. This is true. This is true. It's a problem for for medication. It's a problem in science generally. So maybe there's room here for trying to educate the media and the public about what science is and what it isn't so that you can't sneak stuff through. Well, I guess we've sort of picked on a couple of very important issues here. First of all is that the people who make the decisions in, in, in media, they're not... Generally, they're not scientifically trained. Therefore, they wouldn't be able to pick out good science from bad science. And as we've as we've been talking about, bad science do tend to be the ones with the catchphrases, the sound bites, the convenient words that a journalist can just easily pick out and say, "Oh, this proves something." And this is what the the media drives on because it needs that sensational, spectacular news. It doesn't want to report on. Uh, science is going on like it has always been going on for the past thousand years. So, unfortunately, we have a problem with the people who make the media decisions, and we also have a lot of scientists, they do not have the media training, and they don't know how to speak on their subject to people who don't have a scientific background. So, for someone who's a journalist... You know, you, you've got someone who has no scientific background. Basically, they ask very simple questions and they need simple, direct answers and the scientists can't give that. So the journalist then goes to the scientists who can give you those quick answers. Great, I've got a soundbite. There's my story. I'll move on to the next thing. So, Whether it's true or not, yes. I think what's particularly bad in this case is that we've got a situation of good science. Ida's a spectacular fossil by any means, and bad science covering, which is actually detrimental to science in the long run, because she's been so hyped up that people are just completely tossing her aside, ignoring anything that she's got to offer, which is lots. Having said that, we we need to perhaps um, remember that there are a lot of good science journalists out there. Unfortunately, it's always a bad one to tarnish a reputation for every good science journalist. Well, I think what's interesting, you, you touched on this earlier, um, the idea that maybe scientists could get media training because there, there is definitely something for them there in the long run. They could get more funding if they are able to formulate their findings in a way that's more accessible to the public, perhaps? Exactly. I think the scientists who do have good informal communication skills, which is the technical term, they can talk to the general public who aren't specialists, sort of do that on their own bat. They're not taught to do that at university generally. So if we could teach all scientists to be able to talk to their grant committee, to be able to talk to newspapers, be able to talk to their friends at parties, to be able to talk to anybody who's not a specialist in the field like they are, then it'd be something they could use throughout their whole career. I know at some universities, in the first uh, in the first year courses, they do now teach communication skills and just not necessarily teaching them you know, how, how to deal with the media, but really just, you know, you know the simple things, how, how do you talk to you know, your friends and your, your family, and you know, just about what you do. And This is true. Actually. This is true. Been involved in developing one of those programs for first year myself. So, yes, it's just starting to come in. Yeah. But the we need more is, of that. Yeah, the problem <laughs> is they spend the next 15 years alone in a lab speaking to absolutely no one as they develop their ideas. Yeah. <laughs> 
those poor, lonely scientists. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. That's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or you'd just like to chat, if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Calvin Ng and Victoria Bond. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Revelation. He said our life evolved from the confusion. He had a theory, it made some people nervous. When he came to the embarrassing conclusion, we come from monkeys, we're not so special. We've only got a little extra DNA. The chimpanzees are very close to us. Australopithecus, he's not so far away. We come from monkeys swinging in the trees. A little bit of monkey inside you and me. A monkey in the middle, a monkey on your back. It's a fundamental problem, but a scientific fact. We come from monkeys. Minded said creation was the answer. They got upset, then those got out of joint. They say we're missing the monkey in the middle. They're picking it, it gotta prove the point. You're not so hairy, you haven't got a tail. You're not adapted for living in a tree. But if you care, count up all your chromosomes. You're 98.4% of chimpanzees. We come from monkeys swinging in the trees A little bit of monkey inside you and me A monkey in the middle, a monkey on your back It's a fundamental problem but a scientific fact We come from monkeys Double helix monkey bars feel the primal beat Six million years we've been walking on our feet A barrel full of monkeys swinging from the family tree 
We don't want to start a social revolution We just want to talk about some monkey evolution But the knuckle dragon still flinging fools just throw us here We come from monkeys Monkey, monkey, do, monkey me, monkey you. Let's all face it, it's all true. We come from monkeys. 